friends and neighbors in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, if you are going to follow along in your Bible, I'm going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is kind of the middle of the New Testament. Um, we're going we're to be in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, a, few, a few weeks ago, uh, there was a, a painting that uh, kind of made the news. It became famous. Uh, it, the name of the painting is called uh, The Three Figures, and it's by a Russian artist named Anna, I'm going to try it real quick, Anna Leporskaya. Uh, Le, Le I'm so sorry, Anna. Uh, I, I'm, I, I know that you'll hear this sermon. Actually, I think the painting might be, you know, many years old, but um, it, it's, a, it's a decent painting. I'm no, I'm no artist, but here it is. Uh, this, is this painting is called The, the Three Figures. Um, it is uh, in a Russian uh, 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 museum. Uh, it's currently located in the Boris Yeltsin Presidential Center, and it has a value of approximately $1 million. So I don't know if you're into art, but this is, this is good art, apparently. I, I, I have a painting. I paint it. I, if I can get $10 for it, I'm pretty excited. Uh, Anna uh, has painted this painting, and it, its current value is a $1 million. And it, it's currently... Uh, it's being shared in different museums, as it were, and so it was just in the Boris Yeltsin Presidential Center um, as part of its its transference because because people want to share things that are beautiful. You guys want to see things that are beautiful, right? Um, and you 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 think that a, a painting that's worth a million dollars is objectively beautiful? Everybody would see this painting and think that is a beautiful, beautiful painting. Except um, that's not really the case. Uh, apparently, people can see things that are really beautiful uh, that have a million dollar plus value and just just not see the beauty or wonder in it. And so uh, the museum that I was at, I forget the name of the one that it was in before the one it is in currently, um, but they hired a security guard uh, to come and patrol the grounds. As you can imagine, if you have a million dollars hanging on the wall every 10 feet, you kind of need a guy to protect that. You know, you just you just want people to understand that this needs to be protected. And so they hired the security guard. Um, and on his first day of making rounds in this museum by himself, he's just wandering through and he's looking at the walls and he's making sure he... Uh, uh, says, he reports to the police later, um, I just got really bored, man. Uh, I was looking at the paintings and I was just really, really bored because what happened uh, is that uh, the security guard in his boredom saw the three figures painting and thought, you know, these faceless things need some eyeballs. And so he drew these eyeballs. Can you go to the next slide, please? And so if you see, uh, he, he took a, a, a ballpoint pen, it looks like pencil, but he took a ballpoint pen in his boredom on his first day of work, the million dollar painting, it says, we need some eyeballs. And so we, we draw those on there. And nobody noticed it right away. Uh, it just hung on the wall with the eyeballs now drawn on Anna's $1 million painting for who knows how long of a period of time this is uh, until some people who were, you, you, I don't know if you've been to a museum, but you go to an art museum, it's a lot of this. Huh. Yeah. And you're just staring at the thing. Oh, wow, that makes me feel feelings. And so, and so there are some people who are staring at this painting saying it makes me feel feelings. And they're like, are those eyeballs? And so they went and reported it to the front desk. Like, I believe someone drew eyeballs on that one painting of the faceless people. And so they go and find it. And they're like, yes, who drew these eyeballs? And then they go and find on the security footage our boy, uh, security guard. And, and he says, you ask him, you're like, okay, were you just like, are you, are you an anarchist? Uh, do you have, do you have like a problem with the establishment? Do you, do you have like a family vendetta with Anna? It's like, I'm, 
I was just bored. I don't know. It's bizarre. Like He's looking at valuable, beautiful things, and he doesn't see the beauty in it, and he just loses it. And, and so as this made the news, maybe some of you heard this story already. It's not very old. As this made the news, people were like, well, if we're going to be editing paintings, let's, let's do some things. And so uh, the, the Evan, who played the drums today, he likes to put googly eyes on stuff. And so look at this. This is what it could look like if someone <laughs> would just, just put googly eyes on, on the painting. And, and it's so funny to look at now, regardless of whether or not you thought that painting was beautiful. It's like to deface it, to, to do something to it, to, to rob it of its, of its worth, of its value. It's like, what were you thinking? What were you doing? Um, we just finished a series uh, last week's four weeks. We looked at uh, these parables that Jesus taught, and every one of them, there's this beauty and this this, this majesty uh, uh, of what the gospel is and, and how it should intersect with us. And I, I've been in church long enough to have gone through waves where uh, the first time I heard the gospel, it was mind blowing. And then I go through a slump of, I don't really see the point and I've lost my awe and my wonder of it. And then I come back up and I'm like, how did I forget that? What did I, what was I doing? And then I come back down and I lose it. And what I want to do today, church is, uh, if you've been in church for a long, long time, uh, you've heard the gospel, you know, the gospel, uh, I just want to challenge you to recapture the beauty of what the gospel is this morning. If you're kind of new to this church thing and you're just like gospel, what, uh, I I'm going to tell you, this is the most beautiful story the world has ever seen. And to, to be captivated by it is the only natural response. It is an overwhelmingly beautiful story. And, and I think we would be wise to just, just pause and to grab that and say, I, I forgot. I forgot what the Lord has done. I forgot how beautiful that story was. I drew googly eyes on this stupid thing. I can't believe I did that. And, and to instead just reverse course and take a step back and just stare not at, not at what God has done for us, but what has, God has done t- for his creation. That's beautiful. You're a beautiful artist, God. That, that is amazing. When they took the painting, they, they saw that uh, the, the security guard, he didn't use a very firm, he just kind of lightly touched it with the ballpoint pen. And they said, listen, it's not, it's not really bad. It's not, it's not a lot of damage. We can repair this. Uh, don't worry about it. And the sticker price for that reparation uh, is $3,300 to fix the $1 million painting. Are you kidding me? Like, there was like, uh, how bad could that have gotten? You know, like, does it go up to $10,000 for the repairs? The great thing about the, the gospel and how the Lord has, has proven himself to us is that even when we uh, have lost our awe and our wonder of it, even when we've become faithless, um, our, our Christianity, our salvation isn't based in our faithfulness for eternity as much as it is based on God's faithfulness. We, we look at God, and from the beginning of time, he was faithful. All, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, he was faithful to his promise that he made at the very beginning, and he sees it through to the very end. We, are, we, we stand firm and secure, not because I didn't go through waves, but even when I go through my waves, God remained faithful to you, to your family, your children. He's been faithful to you since before you were born, and he'll be faithful to you when your great-grandkids are talking about him. He has been faithful, and he will see his plan through to completion. And so Ephesians, uh, where we're going to be today, is written by a guy named Paul. Uh, Paul is uh, he's not 
he's not always a poet. He kind of has like a rough background, uh, very, very analytical. If you read Romans, it's very, it's a dense book. It's a, it's a great book and it has a lot of beauty in it, but it is psychologically, cognitively like difficult to get the, his processes of, uh, through. But then he has these moments where he goes just full on beauty. Uh, and so what, what we see in Ephesians, and this is, I, I haven't read this in anything. This is just me uh, making this uh, observation. It, it seems to me that the book before Ephesians is a Galatians. It seems to me that Ephesians and Galatians, are, they're both written by Paul. They're essentially the same talking points all the way through. Galatians is, I'm going to tell you the facts. I'm going to tell you the truth. And it's very, but Ephesians, it's beautiful. It, it, it has rhythm. It has almost rhyme to it. It has, it has like some poetry to it. And so what I want to do is I want to look at how Paul explains the gospel in the book of Ephesians. Um, I'm going to start in verse 3, and I'm going to end in verse 14. And before I read it, I just want to say just, just a couple of things. Uh, uh, Paul uh, he didn't write in English. I, I don't know if that's uh, surprising to me. I think everybody knows that the Bible wasn't originally written in English. He wrote this in Greek. Um, and when he wrote what we call verses 3 through 14, he didn't stop and put like end sentence punctuation. It, it is one sentence in Greek. Verses 3 through 14 is this incredibly long. I, if you have your Bible, it, you're not going to see it on the, on the screens in full, but look, look at this. This is verses 3 through 14. This is one sentence in Greek, and it's Paul explaining the gospel in the most poetic and beautiful way possible. It's intended to be uh, read and grasped. It's like a, like a breath of fresh air. It's meant to, to capture our all. And so what I would like to do, we don't do this often here, is uh, for the reading of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm just going to read straight through it without explanation, uh, as Paul would have read it, and then we will, we will explain. We're going to start reading in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ." as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. You guys have a seat. Um, you may have noticed in English there's a lot of periods and there's a lot of sentence breaks. It's because in an attempt to translate the one Greek sentence into English, it is literally impossible to do that and obey all of our grammatical rules because it was so complex that that how, how he ebbed and flowed through it, it's just a beautiful uh, uh, wordsmithship uh, to, to create it. Uh, three things I want to bring to your attention before I start explaining it is that there, there are these phrases or, or themes that repeat themselves in the one sentence. In the one sentence that 
that Paul wrote. He repeats himself. Uh, the idea of being blessed or a blessing or blessing God, uh, that phrase comes up four times uh, in the one sentence. It seems to be an important theme in this piece of poetry that he wrote. Uh, it, the, the idea of the praise of his glory or his glorious praise or, or something to that effect, it shows up five times in the one sentence. It seems to me that for Paul to work that idea into the one sentence five times, it's, it's something that we should probably pay attention to. And then the last is this, is that it was according to his purpose. The phrase according to his purposes shows up four times in the one sentence. That is, that is mind-boggling to me um, how, how he did that. I want to work through uh, the, the, the passage and, and look at how Paul explains the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and how we should receive that in order, in a way that, that kind of recaptures our awe and our wonder. I'm going to start back in verse three. It says, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So he begins the gospel, uh, his explanation of the gospel by saying, God has blessed his people, his, the followers of Jesus, has blessed them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so one, one of the first things that, that Paul begins with is like, praise God that he wasn't stingy with his grace with us. He didn't hold back anything in giving us the good stuff. That you as a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, that you have received on, on like the, the, the top end of the gospel, you've received um, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He continues in verse 4, he says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This idea of being holy and blameless seems to be the, the point of the gospel. I'm going to come back to this. This is going to be a major point. But, but the, the goal of God is not to look down on us and our people and we receive guilt and shame and a burden and a weight for how bad we were. But, but even if we are feeling overwhelmed by our sin or overwhelmed, that, that we would realize that we are blameless in him because of who he is. It says, uh, the word uh, above that is that uh, before the foundation of the world. It seems to be that this thing that we call the gospel, this good news of Jesus, that before uh, Genesis 1-1, before in the beginning uh, God said, let there be light, before any of that, uh, before the foundations of the earth, this was plan A for God, that he was going to reveal at some point, I have this, this beautiful plan I'm going to unpack to make my people holy and blameless before him. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Uh, so this idea of being predestined, and it goes back to this, this, like before the foundations of the world, God already knew what he was going to do. I forgot to bring it in here. I have, uh, someone gifted me, uh, this piece of art. I, I should, I should get it. Hey, Davis, would you mind, uh, in my office, there's that circle with the sand thing. Can you bring that in, please? Um, so this, this piece of art, uh, it, it moves sand and you just flip the thing over and the sand like kind of falls and it makes this, this beautiful, beautiful picture. And, and it occurs to me that, that before, uh, it's over, before, before it's all fully formed, God already knows how this sand art is going to form. But it takes me the full five minutes to fully see how it comes together. That before the foundations of the earth, he, he knew that he was going to be adopting us as, uh, his sons and his, and his daughters. Now, I wanna, I wanna pause there because, uh, I've had in, in the last year, uh, two people, it doesn't come up a lot, but two people are like, hey, Jesse, 
Okay, great. Love your church. Love what's going on here. Uh, love everything. Are you Calvinist? And I'm like, well, that's really like, where does that come from? It's like all of a sudden, like we want to talk about Calvinism. If, if you know what Calvinism is, uh, you, you kind of see why predestination comes into it. If you don't, that's it. Yes, thank you. Uh, if you don't, uh, the idea is, you know, he, there, there's, there's a guy named John Calvin who come up with about five tenets of faith. And people will want to draw a line like, I'm not Calvinist or I am Calvinist. I believe in this. And it's funny because when they use the word, and maybe, maybe this is true of you when you've heard the word, when they use the word, they're usually only thinking of one of the five pieces of, of Calvinism. And, and it's usually something along the lines of predestination. And so then they would look at this, this verse and be like, well, look, God, God's predestined us. If we read verses like this, and we apply uh, John Calvin, which is like 16th century uh, theology, onto it, we dismiss all of the beauty of what we were intended to see. Um, I want to look at this for, for what it is, uh, without, without getting lost in like, okay, predestined, adoption, is with the sovereignty of God. Like, just look at it for what it is. The, the, the truth is, is that this formation that is formed right here, God knew it was going to form, and then... Here it is. All of the different pieces of this, you have like gold flanks, you have white, you have blue. It's going to form an image in the next five minutes or so. Uh, I guess I could turn this around, let everybody get a good look at it. It's going to form an image by the time it's done. God knows exactly what is going to come of this. He knows, he knows the beginning from the end, uh, or the end from the beginning instead. Uh, he, he knows where it's going to fall and how the gravity is going to affect it. And this is also true of you. If you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, as your personal savior, it's not because it was an accident. God, God knows how, how our lives and trajectories are going to go through the ups and through the downs, the good parts of life and the bad parts of life. And, and he, he is able to guide us back to his will to be adopted as sons and daughters of him, to be holy and blameless, as it says here. Verse six, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. One, one of the things that we forget often, it's like, why? Why, why did God go about all of this business of sending a son? Why did God go about like salvation? Why is God answering prayers? And many of us have had prayers for our families and things, and we've seen God move. Like, why does he do it? And Paul says the purpose was because it's for his own glorious grace, that, that he is worthy of our praise without doing those things. But he continues to flex. The gospel is him flexing to show off his glorious grace. When he, when he moves and when he accomplishes things, we... Our response should be, wow, that's a good, good God. When, we, when we're in a moment of fear and our loved ones are hurting, and, and though the hurt doesn't go away and the healing hasn't come yet, but a, a, a brief moment of comfort overcomes us. And that, that peace that goes beyond understanding, like we experience that, we walk in that for that, for that moment, that beat. And we have a, a rest and a relaxation in the goodness of God despite our circumstances. That, that is meant to cause us to move towards his glorious grace and be like, wow, thank you so much. It's meant so that people would brag on who he is and what he's accomplished. Ooh. It says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It is, it is only through Christ that our trespasses are forgiven. What a, what a strange word. Have you ever trespassed on somebody's property? 
I don't know. If you have, if you have recently, be careful. Like we're getting a little gun happy in, in Texas. Uh, when, I, when I was a kid, I remember I had like zero cares in the world about like per, people's personal space. I would just cut through people's front yards, backyards, like whatever. I was, I was like, I thought I was a rebel until one time this like 30 year old dude just comes running out the door screaming at me. And I realized uh, in that moment, uh, I'm stuck in this guy's backyard and I don't know, like, is he a mass murderer? I don't know. I, I have trespassed on his property and he's telling me the cops are coming. They're going to arrest me. I'm like 12 years old and you don't want to talk about scared straight. I was like, I will, I will mow your grass, sir. I will do anything you need. Please don't kill me or my family. Uh, and I think, I don't know why he was so angry. I literally was just walking from point A to point B, but, but you know, he's right. I was, I was trespassing. This image here is that that none of us are are sinless. We've all trespassed against God. We've all stepped onto property that wasn't ours. We've all we've all gone after praise that wasn't ours to get. And the gospel is not that Jesus comes to punish us for grabbing praise that wasn't ours or glory that wasn't ours. He comes to relieve us of the of the of the guilt. He comes to relieve us of the punishment. And we're forgiven of our trespasses according to what? It says, according to the riches of his grace. You know, we're, we're forgiven of our trespasses not because you had a really guilty feeling. I had a really guilty feeling when that guy come up to me in the backyard and he was like, finger in my face, I'm terrified. I may have wet my pants a little, I don't know. Neither confirm nor deny. Uh, it, I felt really, really bad. But I'm not forgiven because of how bad I felt. And the same is true of God. You're not forgiven because there was a moment in your life where you were just in bawling and tears because of the weight of your sin. That's not why you're forgiven. It may be a true moment. It may have been true repentance in that moment, but that's not why you're forgiven. You're forgiven because what? According to the riches of his grace. Jesus reaches into his wallet, right? Uh, Metaphorically speaking in heaven, and he pulls out the riches of his treasure. He says, I got you, and he pays for you. According, not to your guilt, not to, according to how much we're able to afford, but according to the riches of his grace, he has forgiven his followers, those who have accepted Christ, of the trespasses that we've all committed. That is a big, big forgiveness. According to the riches of his grace, verse 8, which, what? What did he do with the riches of these grace? Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. I, I did not do, I should have done it. I did not do a Greek word study on the word lavish, but that is a, that is a crazy word in English. Because the word, the word that I would have used is sparingly appropriated according, like, I, like, real, I'm, I'm a stingy kind of Scrooge McDuck kind of guy. Like, I'm just like, okay, you just get whatever you need to get by. Uh, I'm the kid who's like, hey, give the kid like the, the dollar for the candy bars, like, Dad, dude, it's like a dollar twenty-five now. Like you can't get anything for a dollar. Uh, you'll figure out. Buy a Jolly Rancher, kid. Uh, but according to the riches of His grace, that what did He do with it? He lavished it upon. When I think of lavish, I, uh, I have a, a one-year-old at home, and sometimes we lavish like lavender lotion on his body. It's just like just like it's everywhere. It's like goops and gobs of lotion. You just you put it all over to be lavished with the riches of His mercy. It's like God reaches into His storehouse of grace and mercy, and He's just mirroring it all over you. You're just, you're swimming in it. You're like, you, you can't even like, it's an overwhelming amount of grace. You just lavished it. And, and if, if it's me and if I'm giving like the, the Lord God some financial advice, I'm like, Hey, you know, maybe hold some back or something. And maybe that's not so wise, God. Maybe, maybe you're giving too freely. 
And some of us, we actually, uh, we can think of some people that we're pretty mad at. And we're like, hey, if you could just like be a little stingier with your grace with old so-and-so, uh, that, that would be awesome. But, but he lavishes it on us uh, freely, but it says in all wisdom and insight. See, when Paul looks at the gospel, he says that God's not an idiot. He knew that he was going to be doing this before the foundations of the world. He knew that you would need this kind of grace, that I would need this kind of grace. And with all wisdom and insight chooses this is the wisest and most insightful approach to making my name known. For my own glorious praise, I will lavish Jesse with all of this forgiveness of his trespasses. Just ridiculous, scandalous forgiveness. And I did it with wisdom and insight. Uh, that's, he knows what he's doing. Uh, it is not an uncommon trait uh, in, in terms of like just pastoral counseling. It's not an uncommon moment to be talking to someone uh, new and, and old in the faith uh, to have this like sense of guilt about what the Lord has done. Like, what was he doing? He doesn't, he doesn't know. Like, I don't, I don't deserve that. What I want to do is start pointing. I mean, next time I have this coming, I want to point to this verse right here. He did this with all wisdom and insight. He knows who you are. He knows, he knows what you've done. He knows our trespasses. And he still says, in my wisdom of what you've done, my full, full knowledge of who you are and who you will always be, I choose this path, my son's blood for your trespasses. In all wisdom and insight, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. It's a mystery that he's unpacked over the ages of time. That in the beginning, when he created the universe, it was a mystery how he was going to redeem this sucker. This sucker went, went AWOL on him, and it's like, oh, maybe God is working on plan B. No, 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 this is, this is the mystery. Uh, he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for what? For the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It seems to be that in God's wisdom and insight, knowing how all of creation was going to unfold, it was plan A for Jesus to go to the cross. It was plan A for him to stack up a ridiculous amount of grace and mercy to, in order so that plan A would be to lavish it upon Jesse and upon you and upon your family. So that, that the plan A not plan B. He hasn't messed up. Plan A was that he would do this so that in the fullness of time, people would see the goodness of who he is. The creation would be restored back to what it says. He's going to unite all things to him. The gospel is not about you as an individual. It is about us as a creation. We were called, if you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 very carefully, we were called to be stewards of all the created order. All the universe was supposed to be under mankind's dominion, and we were to rule it in the name of, of God, uh, and we rebelled. We trespassed. And now the gospel says he's not giving up on us as individuals. He's not giving up, us, uh, giving up on us as, as a group. And he's not giving up on his creation. That he's actually going to unite us and all things back to him because he's that powerful. You want to talk about the riches of his grace. That is how rich God is. He's not, he's not this powerless, inept God. He is working out his plan in a very sequential way. Let me keep going. Verse 11, it says, In him... We've obtained an inheritance. We've inherited a thing because we're adopted children of God. I didn't say this about adoption. Let me pause real quick and just say a thing about adoption. Um, I've, I've worked with a ton of adoptive families. And one of the questions that always comes up is, like, hey, when, when, do I, when do I tell my kid 
you know, that I adopted them. It's like, won't that scar them or something? And it's a, I get it because you know, it's a big like lifetime TV show, like plot point, like adoption and you know, whatever. Um, here, here's the truth. Uh, you can, you can accidentally, um, uh, conceive a child. Uh, that, that happens. You didn't, you didn't, I've never heard of anybody accidentally adopting a child. No, no one like walked into the courthouse and walked out with three kids on their head. Like, I don't know what happened. That's just like, I had a driver's license thing and like, I thought I was getting a deed and I got kids now. It, that's not how it happens. Adoption is an act of volition. It is a, it is a, it is a heavy, heavy choice. It is a weight that, that parents have to decide, is this the right move? And, and to do that, to adopt a child is to say, I choose you, warts and all. When, when, when the gospel, when Paul says earlier that we were adopted sons and daughters, when we were adopted, that he chose to adopt us. It was a, it was, it, it, we're not accidentally in his family. He chose us. And so now as adoption, uh, as adopted sons and daughters, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's working out everything according to how he wants to do it. it, it he chooses it. And in, in the way that he's chosen it, we get an inheritance. We'll keep reading about this inheritance so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Our purpose is not to be saved for our own sake. Our purpose is to be saved for the praise of his glory. In him, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed. Like like vacuum packed, like like we're talking like Ronco level sealage. Like you are not getting freezer burnt in the ceiling. You've been sealed in uh, this inheritance by the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. But who is the Holy Spirit? Verse fourteen. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory? The purpose of the Holy Spirit, according to Paul right here, is that he was a guarantee. The, another word for that is down payment. Uh, when you decide to go buy a house, you look at a house and you think, I love this house. I would like to buy this house. But you have to do all the paperwork and all the contractual things. Do you just get to sit around and say, I call dibs. I have the house. How do you, how do you prove that you are serious about this house? How do you prove to the owner that you're going to follow through all the way in the bank, that you're going to follow through on getting this house? How do you do it? You have to do some earnest money. You have to put down a down payment. You have to put down some of who you are in, you got some skin in the game, right? To prove I'm going to come through on this house. I'm, I'm signing the contract. And Paul uses that same language and he says, you as a believer, if you've ever received a comfort from the Holy Spirit, if you've ever received counsel where like a verse of scripture pops in here, which is one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to remind us the things and recall uh, the words of scripture. If you've ever seen the Holy Spirit move in your life, that is a down payment that the Lord is going to come through in the fullness of time that you will receive the fullness of your inheritance because he's that good. This is the beautiful gospel. This is why when we talk about the Lord, when we sing the songs that we sang earlier, we should stand back and almost, almost like take our breath away. Like this is, we, we should not be drawing googly eyes on this guys. We should be in awe and wonder. I want to close with three kind of thoughts uh, about the beautiful gospel that I think that we could maybe, maybe package and, and carry with us as we walk out. The first is this, and I've said this several times already. The beautiful gospel is God's plan A. He's not working on plan B. He didn't mess up with Jonah and Noah, and he didn't mess up with Moses. Like from the beginning of time, it was this. 
that Christ would go to the cross in the fullness of time and that we would be uh, adopted as sons and daughters and that we would work towards his praise and glory in the created order, helping to unite all things to him. It says uh, in Ephesians 2, just the next chapter after what we're reading, uh, it says this. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Keep going, please. For not a result of work so that no one may boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared when? He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Two things come to mind whenever I read that verse. Is that the things that you were called to do, they were specifically created for you to do. Your salvation, uh, what are you supposed to do with that? You're supposed to walk in the good works that God prepared beforehand. There's, there are these hoops in your life with your name on it. And you have the skill set to speak truth in that moment, to bring grace in that moment, to bring hope in that moment. And you're called to walk and step through that because you were created to do that thing. That's why we get to participate in the created order. But it's plan A. It's not It's not down the list. The second thing is that word workmanship in English. Uh, the Greek word for that is poemia. We get the word poem from it. Also, we get the word masterpiece from it. The idea isn't that God just like slaps some stuff together. It's that, it's that Beethoven has finished his symphony. It's that, it's that Anna, whatever her name was, has finished her work of art and is now worth a million dollars. You are the poemia. You are the masterpiece of God, exactly as you were meant to be, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that were created for you beforehand. This is plan A, and we get to walk in it. It is a beautiful gospel to be able to be a part of that. The second thing is this, is that the beautiful gospel creates a path for us to be, in reality, holy and blameless. Not a feeling, just a feeling of being holy and blameless, but in reality, holy and blameless. Our trespasses are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven, and we stand upright, not carrying the burden and weight of our own guilt anymore. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're carrying your own shame and guilt, it's either A, a lie, or B, you have not delivered that to the cross yet and just said, Lord, forgive me. Please, would you forgive me? And and there's more than one cynic in the room right now. It's like, Jesse, are you sure that's all there is? Yeah, I am. First John uh, chapter 1 says this. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not us. And you're like, that's what I'm saying. I have sin, and if I tell you right now I'm holy and blameless and I have no sin, I, I'm, I'm a liar. That's what, that's what the Bible says. Verse 9, look at the next sentence after it. It says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, see, the act of being holy and blameless, the act of this gospel, isn't that when you were four years old or 10 years old or you were in VBS or whatever, that you confessed your sins and like you're done confessing sins. We continue to trespass in our lives, don't we? And then we carry shame and guilt that was never ours to carry, and it slows us down to do the work that God did create us to do. And our act should be, as believers, when we look at the beautiful gospel, is not to be stunted in our growth, but to day by day grow in this and confess our sins to him. And what he's going to do when we confess our sins to him, he is, he is righteous to do this and he's justified in doing this because he's lavished such high riches on us, is that he will forgive us of those sins and then he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That day by day, we're like, I messed up. Will you, will you forgive that? Yes. And scrub that little spot off of you. Day by day, confession by confession, we look more and more like innocent lambs, holy and blameless, because in reality, Jesus' riches of heaven that he reached into, that's how rich he is. 
He is capable of dipping into the bank that many times. If you go to him 10 times today, I messed up again, will you forgive me? Yes, and let me scrub that a little bit. I'm going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The third thing is this before I close, is that the beautiful gospel is news that God is uniting all things in him. See, Christians have a habit of being really selfish with the grace that we've received. And like, I heard the gospel, I've received that, and yay me, I get to, get to strut it out. But, but you're, you're called to walk in those good works that were prepared beforehand. We already talked about them, but, but read this. It's uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 5, starting in verse 18. It says, all this is from God. All this stuff that God has done, all this gospel, it's all from God, who through Christ, he reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The idea is that things were apart and they need to be reconciled. And they're like, things are apart, bring it together and it's reconciled. So God sees that all things were apart and he's reconciled all things to himself. And, but then he gave us the ministry to go out and reconcile these things. Let's keep going. Verse 19. It says, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He's entrusted to us this message. It's not about pushing people away from the gospel. It's not about saying, hey, your politician is the worst. It's about bringing people together. Verse 20 says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Our job, once we're in all of this beautiful gospel, our job is to be ministers of that, to be ambassadors into this world and go out into this world. When you leave here in just a moment, you go to lunch, you go out there and you find something that is separated from God, someone whose heart is broken, someone who has nothing, and you work through prayer to bring them back to God. You work through your words and your actions and your deeds to reconcile them to God. You pray for your children. You pray for your neighbor. You go and pray for your waitress in just a moment, and you tip her lavishly out of the riches of your wallet. I'm telling you, um, this is what we're called to do. And when we sit back and we're in our slump and we're just drawing googly eyes on the gospel, we're losing the beauty and the majesty of what it is that God has paid a high price, all for the praise of his glory. And we get to participate in that for the praise of his glory, to go out into this world with, with no sin and no shame on our shoulders to the praise of his glory, because he's forgiven us of our great trespasses, though they were many. He has lifted us from all of that burden to the praise of his glory. And then every step we take in every action and every conversation gets to be that to the praise of his glory, because the gospel is that beautiful and it will sustain you in all, all ways for the rest of your life. This will be the mission that will, will keep you going and keep your engine running. Let me pray for you. Uh, and then we will uh, watch the queue together. Father, uh, we, we come to you admittedly as, as a group of people that um, I, I know for myself, Lord, I, I lose sight of, of the beauty of what you've done. It's already accomplished. Um, and I take it for granted. Uh, Lord, forgive me and forgive us uh, when we lose sight of who you are. Forgive us for, for when we, we dismiss uh, the gospel. Uh, Lord, give us give us a fresh breath, a fresh take on what you've accomplished in our lives already. Things that are that are beyond beyond what we've deserved. Um, you've blessed our families. You've you've pulled us out of pits. You've you've given us hope where everything else was hopeless. Uh, Lord, help us to see that. Uh, help us to see what you're doing and to just look on it with awe. And, and in doing so, we bring more praise and more glory to your name. 
Uh, help us to be those ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for you in this world, um, and go out into this world. And when we see things that are broken, uh, Lord, give us the courage and the ability to, to bring reconciliation. Give us the ability to walk in those good works that you prepared beforehand for us to walk into. Uh, help us see what those are and uh, be a part of what you're doing and bring hope to more people. We'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.